to our guest, I want to talk about our NOAA subscription. CD Media is not just a local news company. We're not just a military company. We're not even just a national company. CDM is a global news organization that has reporters from the Middle East to Eastern Europe to the Balkans to Asia to Latin America to the United States. Put us in your daily scan and get the news, tip of the spear news from around the world. I know that people don't like ads, however. They don't like pop-up ads on their phone. They don't like to see ads on the websites. But you know what? We have to make money. Seriously, we have to support ourselves, and that's one of the ways we do it. However, if you don't like ads, you can sign up for our NOAA subscription. And guess what? You get access to our dozen newspapers around the world, our dozen news organizations, and you get access to all this quality, high-quality content. So, so give us a few bucks, sign up for your no-ad subscription, and you'll get access to all of the sites with a block on the ads, and you'll be very happy. And now let's get to our guest. Hi, everybody. I'm Christine Dolan, and this is our global conversation in plain sight. And we are honored today to have Colonel Tom Remfer and Colonel Jim Zitlow with us on the show. Jim, your audio is uh, off, so why don't you put that on? There we go. Okay, so welcome to the show, guys. Thank you. Uh, so we just finished a American conversations in Chicago where we talked about uh, the policies at one of the airlines, which I encourage everybody to go to on our website under events. Uh, but today we're going to be talking about something that's broader. And we discussed this in Chicago, but I wanted to centralize and focus on this show because people need to know the history of how the U.S. policies have been developed through the years for vaccinations. And without going into a great detail until 1986, where the um, pharmaceutical companies received, you know, a policy where they have no liabilities for vaccinations. This goes um, a little bit further into history, into the 1990s. Tom, why don't we start with you first and talk about the vaccination, the anthrax vaccinations during uh, Gulf One, where the the military in the theater were required to take the anthrax vaccination and then the conversation about five or six years later and how it evolved into talking about the anthrax vaccination for the entire military. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a key question. Um, the history is very important uh, because after the um, difficult experience that they had with giving uh, anthrax vaccinations during the first Gulf War, um, the Congress ended up putting in place laws in order to make sure that service mem members would not be uh, required to take investigational unapproved med medical products um, in the future. Uh, so that law was called uh, 10 USC 1107. And uh, the importance of the law was that the United States Congress 
uh, basically, essentially due to the first Gulf War experience, knew that they had to uh, put some protections in for our service members. And, and, and look, before, before we get to that, the reason was being because of the Gulf War syndrome? Yeah, so Gulf War illness um, uh, was a, um, a wide range of autoimmune illness type maladies that Gulf War veterans suffered from. Uh, there was a very, very large register of service members, um, 150,000 or so, uh, that had um, a variety of illnesses. Um, most would be essentially considered autoimmune illnesses. And the Department of Defense uh, and the Department of Veteran Affairs um, over the many years uh, tried to uh, explain it away and, and essentially not investigate anthrax vaccine as a, as a possible cause. Um, during the first Gulf War uh, and the run-up, they actually believed that they needed to have uh, an anthrax vaccine for our troops. And in doing so, uh, they uh, took the original manufacturer of anthrax vaccine in Michigan, the Michigan um, Department of Public Health, and the Department of Defense went in prior to the first Gulf War, uh, and they uh, coordinated the um, increase in the in the total number of manufacturing trains or assembly lines, essentially, for the vaccine. Uh, they changed the filters and the fermentation systems of the vaccine manufacturing process. Um, and there were questions as to the, uh, the possible potency increases in the vaccine as a result of these manufacturing changes. The most significant part of those manufacturing changes prior to the first Gulf War uh, was that they were not approved by the Food and Drug Administration. And there's a GAO report. You can, you can simply search uh, GAO.gov and unapproved manufacturing changes. And they verify all of these um, improper uh, unapproved manufacturing changes that occurred prior to the first Gulf War, which certainly could be um, partially responsible um, for Gulf War illness, considering the large number of troops that took the vaccine, probably over 150,000 troops taking 300,000 doses, and uh, the similar number of people that are listed in the Gulf War registry. So the unapproved manufacturing change, the lack of proper regulation, for what essentially was a Department of Defense uh, vaccine uh, production process. Um, military members were basically on scene um, uh, overseeing these unapproved manufacturing changes prior to that first Gulf War. So very problematic. Um, uh, so how, did they, how did they jump to later on that they wanted to give more to, the, they wanted to um, mandate it for all of the people in the military? Christine, Christine, it's a great question because in the intervening years, the Senate looked at Gulf War illness and they determined, uh, the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee in particular, they determined that anthrax vaccine could not be ruled out as a possible cause of Gulf War illness. And so despite the fact that that was the conclusion and despite the fact that the conclusion was that it, it was applied in an investigational manner during the first Gulf War, it was. Uh, it is perplexing as to why the Department of Defense in the 1997-1998 timeframe would then move forward with a mandatory program 
for the investigational use of the vaccine to counter inhalation anthrax infection when that was investigational. And the law that had been uh, passed during the same time frame specifically said that soldiers could not be mandated to take a vaccine that was being used for an investigational purpose. So it was patently illegal at the time. And I can talk to you a little bit more about the background of how I got involved in it um, in the 1998 time frame, if we have time for that. Oh, we do. We do. We've got plenty of time because I want, I, want, I want people to understand that this is when we talk about COVID and the lack of standards and practices for manufacturing in the clinical trials. The, the purpose of this show is to explain to people that this type of policy development has been out there for a long period of time. And both of you are, you know, absolutely have been on the front lines of this, not only as military folks, but also as pilots uh, in the industry and knowing that it is it is against the FAA rules to give pilots experimental drugs, but it's against the rules of the military to give experimental drugs to military members. So please go into the details of how you got involved in 1998 when they decided to, at that point in time, mandate all of the military for anthrax vaccination that they knowingly knew, that they knew at that point in time that it was possibly harmful. Right. So um, as a as a follow-up to the Senate report, um, they uh, essentially had the anthrax vaccine manufacturer inspected by the Food and Drug Administration. So this uh, um, previous backwater vaccine operation under the state of Michigan um, was uh, investigated, inspected by the Food and Drug Administration, and they uh, ended up filling out their, um, their deviation forms, which documented multiple um, uh, deviations according to current good manufacturing practices. Um, those uh, FDA deviations resulted in a notice of intent to revoke the manufacturer's license, all just prior to the mandatory anthrax vaccine program being announced for the entire Department of Defense. And this was after the um, uh, problematic first Gulf War experience and, and after the law that said that they couldn't mandate investigational products. So where I personally became involved on a professional basis was um, our commander in our unit specifically tasked myself and another officer, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Russell Dingle, who's passed away since, but he was the intellectual heavyweight in all of our research. He was my commander, asked me to help. Uh, he brought to the attention of the chain of command the Senate report saying that the vaccine was investigational, the law that, that made it clear that you could not mandate uh, investigational vaccines. And he went a few steps further and he actually researched the original license. And so not only did he discover that it was investigational and patently illegal to mandate, but he also discovered that the vaccine license had never been finalized by the Food and Drug Administration. So we brought all that to the attention of the military leadership over the ensuing years. And we ended up also um, uh, filing a citizen petition with the Food and Drug Administration in order to bring to their attention that we were aware that there was never a finalized license for anthrax vaccine in the Federal Register. And the FDA acknowledged that Indeed, the, the vaccine um, had not been finalized, the vaccine license had not been finalized, and it needed to do so. 
Uh, so part of this background from the 1998 to 2001 timeframe um, included our elected representatives in the state of Connecticut asking us to testify as to um, not only uh, these uh, manufacturing uh, deviations and the, um, uh, the patent violations of U.S. law, um, but we also uh, brought to the attention of multiple elected representatives our concerns, and they supported us. Um, now Senator Blumenthal was attorney general in the state of Connecticut. Um, he supported us and uh, wrote letters to the Secretary of Defense um, explaining that the vaccine mandate was uh, absolutely illegal and uh, the mandate needed to be rescinded. Um, Senator Tom Daschle also uh, had written to uh, the Secretary of Defense after we um, briefed his staff and Representative Gephardt's staff, and they questioned the punishments that had been meted out for our troops. And during that same time frame, um, we had um, veteran philanthropist um, H. Ross Perot reach out, um, uh, asked for our briefing book. I provided it to him. Uh, he had Carl Rove in the White House contact us, and uh, they wanted our information. We provided it to him. Um, uh, Mr. Rove um, and the Department of Defense um, informed us that they were having Deputy Secretary of Defense Paul Wolfowitz um, investigate the anthrax vaccine mandate. Uh, his undersecretaries, Dr. David Chu, and uh, um, Secretary uh, for Acquisitions, uh, Logistics and Technology, Pete Aldridge. Um, uh, he had them uh, uh, go ahead and give recommendations to the Secretary of Defense. They essentially recommended that the vaccine program be canceled uh, and that they develop a next generation vaccine. And that all happened kind of up until approximately the August of 2001 timeframe. Um, we'd made significant advances. Before you, go, before you go there, Colonel, let's back up. So this, so there were hearings during the Clinton administration in the late 1990s, and then the transition happened in 2000. So it went from the Clinton administration into the Bush administration in 2000. And so there was a hesitancy on Capitol Hill. There was testimony by the FDA, admissions by the FDA, you guys came forward within the military and said, you know, why are we doing this? So, you know, it, it seems to be that there were Republicans in the, it was Chris Shays, who was a congressman at the time, who was the head of a subcommittee where a lot, you and some other people had testified. So that was, what I'm trying to point out here is that there was a bipartisan discussion, whether it was under the Clinton administration or the Bush administration. So people on both parties knew from what I'm gleaning that there was a problem with the anthrax vaccination from a policy, from an agency point of view, and with evidence from the Gulf War as well in the yes. early 1990s. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a that's a key thing to point out that uh, it, this was a an, an apolitical enterprise to provide oversight for the use of the anthrax vaccine. Um, both sides of the aisle were coming together. Uh, Senator Dash, Representative Gephardt, um, Senator Dodd, uh, all, were all trying to help us. Um, uh, Senator Blumenthal and uh, Representative uh, uh, Burton, Representative Shays. Um, Ron uh, uh, Paul, uh, Rand Paul's father, uh, they were all supportive of not only stopping the anthrax vaccine program, but also getting records corrected for the people that were being punished uh, for not wanting to comply with what was a patently illegal order. And uh, 
you know, one thing that we've talked about in the past, I, I think it's important because both Jim and I come from this experience of uh, our military training, you know, the leadership laboratory of the academies and our, our early foundations um, have to do with our oath of office, uh, supporting, defending the Constitution, which is all about laws. And our code of conduct, uh, which specifically says we're not supposed to do any harm to our uh, comrades uh, and that we're not supposed to uh, do anything but follow legal orders. And so in this case, our duty was clear to us uh, that we needed to challenge this. And, you know, it's interesting, a coincidence, um, one of the undersecretaries that had investigated the anthrax vaccine for Carl Rove and Wolfowitz and Rumsfeld uh, was Pete Aldridge. He was the undersecretary uh, of defense who gave the recommendations to stop the program uh, in August of 2001. Uh, and he yes. was also... I, I neglected to say something to our audience, so forgive me for interrupting for a second, but you both are graduates of the Air Force Academy. You were in the same class together, and that's important for the context of this, but go yes, on. Yes, and and so when when myself and Jim graduated uh, in late May of 1987, uh, Secretary of the Air Force, Pete Aldridge, same guy, um, he told us that there are gonna be times in your military career when you are gonna be faced with a professional dilemma and where policies aren't gonna make sense and you have to stand up and you have to challenge those policies. You know, uh, we did not go looking for this. Jim, with respect to the COVID vaccine mandates, didn't go looking for this. The mandate hunted him down. Same thing happened with us over 20 years ago with the anthrax vaccine mandate. Um, you know, we were just flying fighters, A-10s um, in the National Guard trying to serve our country. And unfortunately, the anthrax vaccine mandate uh, got in the way of that. Um, but we did our duty, as Secretary of the Air Force Aldridge had uh, told us to do, as our military training, our honor code, oath of office, core values, um, uh, code of conduct, all trained us to do. And we did challenge the, um, the mandates. Um, so uh, in challenging the mandates, um, the military um, ultimately didn't listen. So they didn't listen to us in the uh, in the time frame from 1998 to 2001, where some of our testimonies were asking them to reflect on on, on doctrine. Military doctrine was very clear that um, uh, biological threats were an absolute taboo. Uh, the biological warfare threat was something that had always existed but we wanted to try to deal with those um, through other means. And we didn't acknowledge those as legitimate means of warfare. E essentially what happened from uh, the first Gulf War on is we literally have uh, acknowledged um, biological weapons um, as, a, as a major um, uh, threat in warfare. Um, it hasn't happened in warfare. It's only happened in the civilian context. So the anthrax uh, letter attacks were part of that. And, and there was a pivotal juncture for us in that August 2001 timeframe where the anthrax vaccine program was on the verge of being shut down. And suddenly the next month, September of 2001, 9-11 uh, occurred. And a week later, anthrax letters were put in the mail. And so at the time, it was it was very frustrating to us because the anthrax vaccine program was on the verge of, of uh, being um, shuttered. And within weeks, um, the White House contacted me and said the Department of Defense will be handling this from here on. And um, that, 
and again, that was the, some of the people that received the letters included Senator Tom Daschle at the time, who was in favor for stopping Yes, Christine. And his office had been working um, diligently, uh, keeping us informed every step of the way. Um, and, but in the second round of anthrax letters in October of 2001, um, the, uh, uh, the senator's office was actually one of the uh, few targets of the anthrax letters. And amazingly, we never heard from Senator Daschle's office again. Um, they they went completely Nordo, uh, military speak, that's no radio, calm out. Uh, we never heard from them again. Uh, that, was, that, that was concerning because um, at the time I thought it was extremely suspicious that the anthrax vaccine program was on the verge of cancellation. Senator Daschle was one of our primary advocates uh, speaking directly with correspondents um, and working directly with the Office of the Secretary of Defense and suddenly his office was attacked. And um, that was never revealed. Um, ultimately, uh, it took almost 10 years for the FBI and the Department of Justice to put out their uh, findings with respect to the anthrax letter attacks. They referred to the report as the Amerithrax report. And in the Amerithrax report, they literally say they have no inkling as to why Senator Daschle's office might have been attacked, which um, defies all logic. Uh, it, it simply wasn't truthful um, because Senator Daschle's office uh, fit the motive stated in the anth in the Amerithrax report. They said that the um, anthrax letter attack motive was to revive or resuscitate the failing anthrax vaccine program. So I think they got the motive right. Um, but the idea that they would actually occlude in the report uh, any reference to the fact that Senator Daschle was actually questioning SecDef Rumsfeld about the vaccine program, I think is a, is a significant omission. Um, needless to say, it came two years late. And what happened in the, in the interim was the launching of uh, Project BioShield. Uh, America was scared. There were anthrax letters in the mail. There were, uh, was, a, was a great fear that was created uh, in this um, bio uh, defense realm, bio incident realm. And the, uh, um, the ultimate uh, result of that was not a resurveying of judgments like, hey, maybe this anthrax vaccine program was really bad and, 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 and maybe we need to go back and look at why that might have motivated these um, anthrax letter attacks. And if the program was on the verge of cancellation, maybe we ought to go take a look at whether or not that program should have been re resuscitated in that intervening 10 years and whether or not $5.6 billion should have been allocated to Project BioShield um, related to this threat, which did, you know, granted, killed five Americans, made many people sick. But at the same time, simple antibiotics, penicillin, um, uh, Cipro, were able to treat people as long as they were given those therapeutics in a timely manner. Anthrax vaccine was not required to save anybody's lives. And so uh, I, think it's, I think it's reasonable ask, uh, to ask whether or not the reactive um, exorbitant expenditures and funding of Project BioShield were really necessary. Uh, and even if they were um, necessary, uh, I, I think you need to look at the um, most recent 2018 updated in 2022 biodefense strategies. The whole point of our national biodefense strategy is to utilize therapeutics, um, maintain resiliency in the way in which we respond to potential bio incidents. 
the, the reports or the strategy has five major goals. Bio incidents are mentioned in um, all five of the goals. So, you know, several years prior to the pandemic, our government was recognizing that bio incidents were a potential problem. And unfortunately, both with the anthrax letter attacks and with the pandemic, it appears that, um, I mean, it's, it's fact that um, the anthrax uh, letter attacks emanated from um, the, the bio defense, bio research um, enterprise from the United States government. And it's also becoming more and more clear uh, multiple reports from the Department of Energy, the FBI's statements, um, Senator Marshall's recent um, revelations, uh, the Senate Select Committee for COVID Origins. Everybody's saying that uh, it's most likely that there was an accidental release at the Wuhan labs of, um, of uh, SARS-CoV-2. And as a result, that essentially linked back to potentially uh, funding from the U.S. government. And so just like Project BioShield resulted in billions and billions of dollars of reactive funding for this same enterprise. Similarly, uh, post-COVID, there's been tens and tens and tens of billions of dollars uh, spent uh, again for countermeasures. And so it seems to me that some of that money should be spent to look at the goals of the biodefense strategies, and that's how do we reduce bioincidents? Uh, one of my, you hold, know, hold on, hold, hold on for a second, Tom, because sure, we're, we're jumping ahead to right now. We need to sure. we, chronologically, people need to understand something. Go back to 2001 as a result of the anthrax, then they approved it, but then something happened in 2003 and 2004. They stopped the anthrax vaccination. What happened yeah. at that time? Yeah. Good, good. Then I want to get Jim in of what happened in 2007. Sure. A good point. I appreciate you. Yeah, you're forcing me to re rewind. Um, it, it, it's very important that even though we were frustrated with the anthrax letter attacks, the uh, stalling of the review of the anthrax vaccine program, the acceleration of that program in reaction to those uh, attacks by a military insider, um, uh, we we trudged on. Uh, we filed that citizen petition. FDA admitted that the vaccine hadn't been licensed, and a suit was brought by uh, an attorney by the name of Lou Michaels. He was an, uh, a, re a retired a U.S. Air Force Reserve staff judge advocate, and in his civilian capacity, he brought a case for service members and said, "Hey, this is this is all illegal. FDA has admitted that it's not even licensed." The courts agreed, and uh, and so in the 2003-2004 timeframe. Uh, the federal court, uh, Judge Emmett Sullivan, uh, Sullivan from the D.C. District, actually uh, put a halt to the program, uh, enjoined it, a preliminary injunction in 2003, permanent injunction in 2004, and said, uh, you are uh, barred from forcing any of our troops to take uh, the vaccine, which created a, an interesting dilemma because the Department of Defense still wanted the opportunity to provide their protective uh, countermeasure to the troops. And so they asked for the department of uh, uh, the uh, government to allow them to continue to use the vaccine on a strictly voluntary basis. And so uh, Congress helped made, make that happen through the PREP Act and through the Emergency Use Authorization Law, the EUA now, law. Explain to the, explain to the audience the significance of that. The Emergency Use Act was created po po post-vaccination investigation, approval, 
scare by 2001 and then eventually was pulled back. And But as a result, they decided to create another window of opportunity in case they needed it. Is that is that the best way to describe it for the audience? Sure. I, the way I like to frame it is uh, they needed a workaround. The federal court had stopped their program, and so they could no longer give their countermeasure to the troops because it was an, an investigational, unapproved medical product. And so the EUA law was created to allow or authorize use of an emergency use authorized product, something that's investigational and unapproved. And uh, they made very clear, they published it in the Federal Register in 2005, that you can use this EUA for anthrax vaccine, but it has to be on a strictly uh, voluntary basis. Uh, the words in the Federal Register uh, authorizing the EUA anthrax vaccine, the first ever EUA in the history of our country for that brand new law was anthrax vaccine. And they made very clear in the Federal Register, no penalty, no loss of entitlements, no loss of benefits, no punishment. Soldiers would still be allowed to deploy even if they exercised their prior consent and did not take the vaccine. So um, that precedent is very important because it established that any EUA product is strictly voluntary, no questions. Okay, and so, so Jim, let's jump to bring you in on the conversation. So that brings us up to about 2005. Is there anything between 2005 and 2007, Jim, when you were appointed to create, to, to, you were tasked, you were the number one choice of Secretary of Defense Gates at that point in time. Rumsfeld was out, Gates was in, you were brought in, you were told you're the number one choice um, of the Secretary of Defense to create the first global pandemic preparedness plan for influenza in 2007, which is significant in terms of chronology here from when Tom was doing objecting to anthrax and through those years. And then when you became appointed, is there is there anything between 2005 and 2007 that's significant in this discussion? Well, let me, let me uh, Christine, let me just tie in some of the previous years so we can uh, work the overlap uh, with what was happening. So in uh, 2001, we were talking about the anthrax letter attacks. I was actually assigned to the Secretary of the Air Force's Office of Legislative Liaison. And uh, so our our office members, including my team, were going over to Capitol Hill to meet with uh, congressional representatives. And actually, uh, on one of the days when the attacks happened and the letters were open, two of our office mates were potentially exposed to the anthrax spores in uh, one of those congressional offices and came back to the Pentagon and were uh, actually having to be uh, distributed uh, Cipro uh, in order to prevent any sort of uh, infection or uh, progress of that, uh, you know, exposure. So I, you know, I saw it firsthand, you know, we were in a place where uh, in the Pentagon where we were dealing with uh, just post 9-11 and the focus on getting ready to go into Afghanistan. And then all of a sudden these anthrax letter attacks happened. So uh, that's just uh, to tie in with what Tom was saying earlier. But uh, just to give you a little bit of history on the on the transition. So in, in January 2007, they they brought me in my uh, my boss and said, you are you're going to be our number one choice based on uh, the fact you had just finished up a major plan post uh, Hurricane Katrina to do catastrophic search and rescue uh, after rescuing thousands of people off of rooftops after Hurricane Katrina. I had 
done a multi-dimensional plan and led that effort to fruition. And we published that with headquarters FEMA. And uh, my boss brought me in and said, yeah, you're in the natural choice uh, given uh, your ability to bring a number of uh, different partners and players together to develop a plan. So uh, they brought me in in January 2007. They said, here's generally the guidance. Just remember that uh, back in 2001, uh, President uh, George W. Bush 43 had uh, discussed uh, we need to develop 15 national planning scenarios, one of which was build a, a pandemic plan for uh, the national contingency and resi resiliency. So that was uh, our initial guidance. And then uh, Homeland Security Presidential Directive that came out of the Department of Homeland Security said uh, uh, it was a presidential uh, directive 21 that said uh, we need to have a public health and um, basically to, a public health policy uh, to take care of the American public in, in uh, health contingency. So there were four major components of that Homeland Security Presidential Directive 21 that was developed in the early 2000s. And that, that uh, the first of the four components was biosurveillance. So we needed to track where virus uh, transmission and you know the hotspots were across the nation. The second component of that was uh, the strategic national stockpile. So we needed to develop a, you know, a capacity a storehouse of uh, multiple things that we were going to use in a pandemic. So there were three major components of that Homeland Security Presidential Directive stockpile. They were therapeutics, drugs, and vaccines. All three were components of that, not just vaccines, which were long duration development, but therapeutics and drugs were part of the contingency for that. Also, there was a the third component of that uh, presidential directive was uh, to have uh, a capacity for mass casualty in case we had a large number of deaths during a pandemic. And the fourth one, which we haven't seen a lot of in this current effort, uh, was community resiliency and ability to keep the civilian population engaged, employed, and uh, doing normal life life issues. Uh, so we've got, so when we were getting ready to develop our initial pandemic preparedness plan, we got guidance from the three letter uh, agencies, CDC, FDA, NIH, uh, and, and, and those that were involved with uh, national health, basically saying, here are your guidelines based on 90 plus years of public health. This is how you handle a pandemic. Okay, there are multiple tools in the toolbox. So that was essentially our general guidance. And then from the Secretary of Defense, we were given guidance. You need to main, maintain an ability for our weapon systems and our military to be able to operate across the globe. That did not include uh, isolating and shutting down uh, big portions of our military. That meant keeping our weapon systems fully employed, keeping the healthy, operating those, uh, those systems, units operational, and then as necessary, keeping the ill and the, those with uh, symptoms away from those that were healthy. And that's generally about all I can get into. So that was our initial guidance. So we built a multi-phase plan uh, over uh, the span of a, a year. We, we were, were located in Colorado Springs. That's where Headquarters NORAD, U.S. NORTHCOM was, and we brought in planners 
military planners from uh, European Command, Pacific Command, Southern Command, and Central Command, and uh, and then ourselves at uh, Northern Command to cover uh, North America because we were the the supported command to try to prevent you know the the virus from coming into the United States. So uh, we also had medical professionals that we brought in that were advisors to our plan. But as military planners, we had pretty much free reign, nothing really dictated from higher headquarters to write a plan that was going to keep our military fully operational. So every other month or so, these military planners would come in from across the globe. Uh, we would sit down. We had vigorous debates in our planning sessions. I was at the front of the room uh, guiding those debates. Uh, we we disagreed a lot, different from what uh, we might have seen the last three years, but we were able to build consensus. And in between those planning sessions, we had those military planners and medical professionals provide inputs. And we built over a 400 page uh, plan to be able to operate the military through multiple phases and multiple waves of a pandemic in order to get our military operating and continuously operating. But uh, vaccines were not seen as very effective because they there was a long-term development process, a safety process, an FDA approval process, and a production process. So we had to have other tools in the tool block, toolbox to be able to keep our military members healthy and operating the military. So vaccines were discussed, but not of necessarily a priority tool. We and did. not exclusively, which is important to emphasize because we're the next part of this conversation will be on how you guys look at what's happening for the last three years, but go on, Jim. Absolutely. So it was just one of many things that you could use to keep your, your military force healthy. Uh, we did discuss masks like N95 masks, but again, production, limited use, uh, limited, very limited effective effectiveness of masks in order to prevent transmission. And so we utilized all those tools we just talked about, therapeutics, drugs, which were called, in, in our time, it was called antivirals. Today, we call them early treatment protocols in order to keep our troops healthy, our military operating. And so there were no mandated uh, mask and no mandated uh, vaccines. So then real quickly to fast forward a couple of years, I made the colonel's list, moved into the NORAD Northcom Command Center as a command center director. And in 2009, 2010, we had an H1N1 real world pandemic go on. And so the plan that I had led and developed in 2007 was utilized in 2009, 2010 by the US military to keep our troops healthy. There, were, there was no mandated use of masks. There was no mandated use of vaccinations. We used all those other things we talked about, antivirals, early treatment protocols, and we kept our, our military operating and, and healthy. Unfortunately, there were about 60 million Americans that were infected by the H1N1 pandemic, and uh, about 300,000 passed away from uh, the H1N1 uh, virus, uh, slightly above a normal uh, flu year. But we, again, no mandated masks, no mandated vaccines, and society continued to operate, uh, you know, unabated through those uh, those years. So, so Jim, in, in 2009, when your 2007 plan was implemented, 
Did people look upon that implementation as a failure at that point in time? No, there was a, it was considered a success. Again, the military always goes through an event and they do an after action report. As we always say, you know, what are the three sustains and the three improvements you can make on what you just did? And there were there was a lot of, uh, of positive feedback on, you know, we had effectively kept the military operating at that point. And, you know, we felt really good because, again, you know, your military planners and and you work really hard on behalf of not only U.S. military, but you're defending and protecting the United States of America. And you're trying to do the best, most efficient plan that's going to work for uh, for everyone in America and especially not only the military members and their families, but everyone in America to defend our country. So it was important for us to get it right. So in 2009, 2010, we thought we had validated the plan we had written in 2007, and it was going to be the standard going forward for many, many years. And then, so it seems to me that there's a pattern here of people that wanted to expand vaccinations time when, you know, for all the military and have it mandated in the late 1990s. And then they people re-looked at it and they said, no, we don't have to vaccinate everybody. Then Jim, you're saying that when you developed the plan, it was it was people were isolated if they isolated if they got the symptoms, but it wasn't sort of this blanket, everybody gets a vaccination. They had early treatments or antivirals, as you were saying, in your plan. So guys, now fast forward to, to 2020, fast forward to mandated at the military, um, mandated in for jobs in you know some airlines and some other corporations and other industries. What happened? Do we really know what happened here? Why, why, who flipped the switch? Because, I mean, this is upside down from full congressional bipartisan discussions in the 1990s to sensitive, serious, common sense examinations in 2007 and implementation of that plan in 2009 thinking it as a success. Is this all about money and politics and greed, do you think? Or is there a sane conversation going on among people to say, this is the history and why are we doing this? I'm going to take a stab at this, uh, Christine. Um, I'm going to begin by giving that that uh, uh, cliched uh, disclaimer. Uh, you know, Jim and I are... Uh, retired professional military officers. Uh, we were very grateful for our, our military experience, um, but they always want you to make sure that you say your views are, are your own personal views. They don't represent the Department of Defense, its components um, uh, at this time. And I, I think that's really important because over the years, we tried to give our inputs to the Department of Defense. And, and Jim's in my experience is that when push came to shove, when the uh, quote unquote emergency happened, whether it be uh, uh, after the anthrax letter attacks or with the pandemic, it's like they put all of the uh, prior planning uh, back up on the shelf and they went ahead and just uh, rushed out a vaccine alternative in, in lieu of that, despite 
its uh, lack of doctrinal soundness, despite the fact that it was in conflict with the pandemic uh, preparedness that, that Jim had worked arduously on, despite the fact that it was uh, contrary to the uh, recommendation of our investigative panel, where we clearly had identified that um, EUA vaccines uh, were, I'm sorry, actually uh, investigational vaccines were not legal. Uh, and then, of course, that that, uh, you know, fast forwards to the uh, COVID um, vaccine implementation where they're using um, only EUA products and they're similarly not allowed to be mandated under the law. Um, so I, I think if you I think it's an important, you know, background to understand that there's many professionals in government and in the military sectors that um, try to make sure the government stays on tasks and ha has a rational approach to these things. But unfortunately, um, when the when the fear happens, they seem to be able to um, accelerate their efforts to um, fund vaccines. Um, it, it, it's a part of the plan. It's a part of the process, but it's not the only uh, countermeasure. Uh, there's supposed to be a, a comprehensive approach that includes uh, resi resiliency. Um, if it's okay, I'd like to just discuss the EUA law a little bit further and, and how those rights were abridged, if, if we have time for that. No, go, go ahead with that. But before you get into it, it seems to me that both of you should be testifying before Congress. Has anybody reached out to you to testify about COVID today? Uh, not on my end, and uh, and that's okay because there's a there's a. No, great I think deal. it's I think it's important because we we have people up on Capitol Hill who do not understand the history of this. Okay. I think it's, I think it's very important for them to understand because they are the people that supposedly are supposed to come up with some sane policies and they today, need today we have a whole nother uh, generation of service members um other than jim and me that have are very astute uh, they're very well read on the requirements of the law many of them have filed lawsuits many of them have gone to their elected representatives so um uh, but, it, I think, but what, what i what i'm suggesting is the two of you should be because you are the, you are you are the people that can attest to it firsthand that's all i'm saying we're, we're definitely a, a historical connection and intersection considering uh, um, all of this has happened before and all of the warning flags have been raised, um, all of the planning recommended otherwise, uh, you know, compared to what their their policy processes that they actually implemented, implemented and the vast resources that they allocated. So um, I, I think I think our inputs are, are valuable from a historical perspective, but I also think that there are today uh, service members firsthand, uh, these recent experiences, and they have been working with elected representatives and those elected representatives have been listening to them. The Congress moved forward with the National Defense Authorization Act to actually put into law signed by the president, accepted by the Department of Defense to terminate, halt the COVID vaccine mandate in the military. So the good news is um, there is some, some good oversight um, happening from Congress. The termination of the COVID vaccine mandate for the military is historically unprecedented, um, just as the federal uh, judicial rulings in the anthrax vaccine halting that program were historically unprecedented. So, um, uh, you know, not to mention the Supreme Court's uh, reached out and uh, put a stop to the OSHA 
mandate, uh, the Occupational Safety Health um, Act mandate that the administration tried to foist on uh, large businesses. Federal courts, district and appellate have um, almost uni uniformly uh, put stops to the federal contractor mandate, the federal employee mandate. So things haven't gone well. And, you know, regardless of whether or not um, our inputs are needed at this time, I do think that um, uh, our elected representatives um, are, are doing a good job in, in providing oversight. Jim, uh, add to that. I, I just, I just want to clear up the history to make sure there were good ties. We paid, when we were developing our plan, we paid attention to what uh, Tom Remfer and Russ Dingle had done, not just them, not just their effort, but there was so much, uh, you know, there was so much not done correctly as far as the anthrax vaccine implementation. We, we use that information to tie into our planning. You know, the militaries are always, uh, you know, being criticized for planning for the last war. Well, we paid attention to what happened with Tom and his colleagues. And we said, we're going to get this right. And I'm not here trying to defend our effort. Again, our, our, our con plan 3551-07 was lauded for a well-written plan by the Secretary of Defense for uh, putting in place a very versatile plan that would work for pandemics that would uh, come in the future. H1N1 was uh, anticipated. So we looked at that history, we put it in our plan. And again, like Tom says, sure, we can look at the current staff of military members who are capable of discussing how they modified our original 3551 plan. It's had several modifications since then. I'm not privy to those details, but I'm certain that they were uh, modified uh, dramatically from 2020 onward, because what was implemented and used uh, likely after 2020 was, uh, and the way it was responded to was not nearly how we had planned in 2007. And we, just so the audience understands that, Jim, when you talk about the plan in 2007 and also the implementation of it in 2009 and the changes in 2020, a lot of this is classified because it was under DOD, correct? That's, that's correct. It's a, okay, so, so I just want the audience to know because they're probably wondering out there, now why can't he say this? Well, because it was class, parts of it were classified. Well, it's over 400 pages and much of it was classified on the details of how we did business. Yes, that's correct. All right. So, Tom, you wanted to say something about the EUA. Uh, yeah. As far as the emergency use authorization, it's part of America's lexicon at, at this point. Uh, people understood that these products um, for uh, to to combat COVID were uh, indeed emergency use authorized products. Uh, the Department of Defense, I was actually very proud of them initially because they didn't rush to mandate COVID vaccines. Um, as long as they were under EUA, the Department of Defense made sure that the program was strictly voluntary. Um, in the August uh, 2021 timeframe, um, the Food and Drug Administration announced that they were approving um, a product called Comirnaty. Uh, for Pfizer and a product uh, several months later uh, called SpikeVax for Moderna and giving them FDA approval. And, uh, you know, we won't talk about um, the regulatory processes or possible deviations of those processes, but instead we'll just look at the, at the stark reality that those products were never made available in the American marketplace. So there was a gargantuan fraud that was committed on the American people 
put it out there as sound bites in the news that uh, the products are now FDA approved. Try to combat vaccine hesitancy by making sure that the full seal and approval of the United States government and the Food and Drug Administration is on these vaccines. But they never are pro uh, provided. Uh, approved product to the vaccine. Uh, the FDA's uh, Purple Book uh, website specifically says that um, the approved products are not biosimilar or interchangeable with the EUA products. Um, just recently, the EUA products actually lost their uh, authorization or approval at the same time that no approved product had ever been provided to the Americans. I've checked with my own doctor and they've confirmed we never had anything but emergency use authorized products. Same with our pharmacies here in our local area. That is uh, consistent across the country. And so the bottom line is, is that the EUA law under 21 USC 360 BBB-3 is explicit that um, any citizen is gonna be informed of the option to accept or refuse the product and also be informed of consequences. That one word consequences is what the government hinged their entire mandate um, uh, premise on saying, well, you know, it says consequences in the law. So uh, there could be secondary consequences. People could be forced and they could potentially lose their job. They could not be more incorrect. And, and once again, it just like they didn't read uh, Jim's pandemic plan, or just like they ignored our investigative findings about the illegality of anthrax vaccine that was later verified by the federal court, it seems that the U.S. Uh, government, the Department of Justice memos to the administration saying, hey, there's this word consequences, so you can mandate it. That's absolutely incorrect. It's a misinterpretation of the context of the law. The word consequences comes from 21 CFR 50.25. That is a statute that relates to medical clinical trials, informed consent, and the protection of human subjects. The exact same language about option to accept or refuse um, and to be informed of consequences is in that law. Clearly in a medical clinical trial, there cannot be a consequence of somebody losing their job. And so uh, any consequences were intended by the context of the law to be strictly medical in nature. Uh, the uh, U.S. government was never allowed uh, to mandate EUA products. It's a black and white violation of uh, Title 21 of the law, and it's a black and white violation of the subset of 10 U.S.C. 1107, uh, specifically 1107A, which, which allowed emergency use authorized products for the military. So similarly, the military should never have been mandated EUA products. And you know, the, basically the proof is the Department of Defense did not do so until the gargantuan fraud occurred in late August of 2021, where they tried to hoodwink everybody and make them think that the vaccines uh, were gonna be approved and available. They were not. Uh, the other verification of that is, is if you look at the Federal Register from 2005, it has that exact same language about option to accept or refuse and consider consequences, while at the same time saying these vaccines are strictly voluntary, no penalty, no loss of benefits, no loss of entitlements, no punishment, no job loss. So it's unfortunate that not only did they not listen to Jim and his colleagues in the pandemic preparedness um, uh planning process. They didn't listen to us and they didn't read their own laws. And that's, it's very unfortunate, but 
Um, the, the whole, I think the whole exercise here of talking about the history is so important because the next time this happens, we actually have to honor the laws. We are, our current lawmakers and, and policy planners and public health officials need to go back and not overreact. Not only this pattern of overreacting to the fear grenade of the threat and the bio incident, but also overreacting with these exorbitant, you know, national treasury uh, exhausting allocations for countermeasures, which ultimately have a fairly significant safety profile problem and definitely have an efficacy um, uh, uh, problematic uh, uh, experience as well. Uh, and then, you know, just take a look at the at the illegality, black and white, patently illegal to mandate. You know, this is so stunning that I want to have the two of you back on next Sunday's show as well. We're running out of time now um, because we're going to pivot and we're going to expand this conversation. It is so important for people to understand because now the question is, how did this jump into the general public and what are we dealing with? Um, Jim, do you, do you have any last words you want to share? I, again, I, I, agree, I agree. I cannot comment uh, other than these are my personal opinions, not representing the DOD and the Department of the Air Force. But as far as 2020 goes, I know we only have a few minutes. Maybe we can discuss it more next week. But uh, after the 15 days to flatten the curve, everything just went way different than I would have had expected. And I, and I know we don't have time to go into that, but it certainly uh, was uh, stunning. A lot of the uh, decisions and the process and the focus on masking everyone, uh, you know, locking people down, selecting businesses, some that would stay open, some that wouldn't. And when we did our planning, we had to have a military operating. So only would happen if the civilian sector was fully up and operational, not locked down in their homes, their businesses, and school kids uh, kept in front of a, a computer screen. That was not part of our planning to keep our military operating. So those are my initial comments and I can go into it further next week. Well, I, th I just want the audience to remember to read uh, the two statements that have been posted with this in, uh, interview that you each of you have authored in your own words. And we're, we're honored that you have come to us as a news organization and I'm just going to put a plug in here because I know you guys came to us, not because of me, but because of my colleague, Todd Wood, who's also a graduate of the Air Force Academy, a year ahead of you. And I understand his class was, was really uh, hard on you guys in the class of 87. Is that what I keep on hearing now as I get to know all these Air Force graduates? Um, but thank you so much for your service. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for participating with American Conversations in Chicago. And God bless you guys and see you next week. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you, Christine.